Thanks. <laughs> ah, 50. Whoopee. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> Here it comes. I'm waiting for that text. Schedule your colonoscopy today. <laughs> Can't wait. <laughs> uh, um, I want to add just my thanks, Chapel Hill Church, for your support of the ministry of this church. Thank you for all that you do to make this ministry happen. Thank you for helping us meet budget every year and for helping us do what God has called us to do. And we know that's not money. It's not money that drives this at all. We know that it's all of you. It's all of us, that we are the church and God has faithfully provided through you over the years and he will continue to do so. And we just celebrate every time we can, we can come to the end of a fiscal year and just go, he did it again. He did it again. He did it again. And look forward to the year ahead. And I just want to say thank you to our elders. Um, this is an elder-led church. That's who we are. And uh, well, you may not see them up here preaching all the time, although that is a possibility. Um, and you may not see them up here leading worship all the time or things like that. They may not be as visible as some people in the church or whatever. Please know that your elder board loves you very much. And works very hard to make sure that this church is thriving and they make a lot of critical decisions, and, and I just love the work that we get done together. It is an absolutely beautiful thing to be a part of. And so pray for your elders, because we, we make a lot of tough decisions. Um, we walk through a lot of difficult situations, and um, we just would, would appreciate your prayers all the time. All right, um, we're getting back into our series this morning, um, our series called The Light and we're going to take some more time to work our way through the book of First Peter and see what's in there for us. So turn to First Peter chapter 1 again. First Peter chapter 1. You should have no trouble finding it by now. First Peter chapter 1. We're going to read verses 3 through 7 this morning. And we're going to focus on verses 6 and 7, uh, which happen to be one sentence. So here we go. First Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 3. This is what Peter writes to the church. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I hope that sunk in last week. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that has perished, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Keep your Bibles open to First Peter chapter 1. We're going to dwell on these two verses, one sentence, verses 6 and 7 today, and, and discover just how much Peter has to say to us, how much God is going to say through the writing of Peter in that one sentence today. He begins with this, In this you rejoice. 
In this you rejoice. And we need to understand the word rejoice. And if my foot foot didn't hurt so bad, I would demonstrate for you exactly what this word means. Because the word rejoice comes with a very physical response. And maybe it's something that happens inside of us, but maybe it's something that sometimes happens on the outside as well. To rejoice literally means, and most accurately means, to jump for joy. To jump up and down for joy. To show one's joy by leaping and skipping, denoting excessive or ecstatic joy and delight. That's what it means to rejoice. To jump for joy. Okay, so what are we supposed to be so ecstatic about? Well, go back to last week. I yelled and screamed a little bit about the things that we should be excited about. The things that should drive us to praise God. The things that we should get that excited about. We talked about our living hope. And the fact that this hope is the only hope that we have in this world. There is nothing that this world can deliver on when it comes to hope. Nothing. The only hope that we have is our living hope in Jesus Christ. The one that he brought. We talked about the joy that can be found when we think about our inheritance. The inheritance that is waiting unspoiled, untouched, well protected for us in heaven at the end of time. We talked about our divine protection, the fact that God is keeping us for that. He's he's protecting us. He's watching over us for that inheritance. We talked about our ongoing transformation through faith that's taking place by the work of the Holy Spirit in us. We're being sanctified by the Spirit daily, and we ought to rejoice in that. We'll talk more about that today. We're going to add to this list today. Peter is not short on words when it comes to things that we can rejoice about, things that should make us ecstatic, that should make us jump for joy. He's got a lot of things in mind. So here's my question. Have you ever really jumped for joy over these things? Have you ever jumped for joy? We're to rejoice. This, this ought to be that valuable to us. We ought to rejoice over the things that God has given us, over the things that we can look forward to and the things that we have right now. And like I said, it may not come in a physical way for you. It was fun. We did this with small group on on Friday night. I I called up a couple of the kids in our small group to demonstrate what it means to rejoice. I didn't tell them what it meant. I just said, jump up and down. Just stand here and jump up and down. You know what the one thing was that they couldn't avoid while they were jumping up and down? smiling it just made them smile that's what we're talking about but maybe it's internal for you maybe it is that inner joy that just overwhelms you maybe it's happy tears i do a lot of happy tears i do it up here you may have noticed we ought to be rejoicing in what we have received from our father we ought to be rejoicing over that and we'll come back to the rejoicing at the end of this message but peter doesn't stop there He says in verse 6, in this you rejoice, though, though, however, there's something happening right now that disrupts this rejoicing. God understands that. Peter wrote about it. He understands that. This something is competing for our emotions. It's competing for our response. It's competing with our joy. And what is this something? Trials. 
trials that come in our life are competing with joy. And I think every one of us could say that's absolutely true. What kind of emotion does the word trials produce? Well, not joy, right? We don't jump up and down when we're facing a trial. Well, it might be in anger, but it's certainly not in joy. I'm going to work today. I haven't done this for a while. I'm going to work today with a little bit of a chart and um, talk a little bit about our trials and different aspects of our trials that are brought out in this one sentence. And so if you're a a chart person, this will resonate with you. Um, even, Even just thinking about the trials that we face produces in us usually the opposite of joy, the opposite of rejoicing. It's more of a a stay-in-bed kind of a reaction than a jump-up-and-down reaction. Think for a minute about how we view the trials in our lives. We all face them. And if you're going, well, you know what? I never have. Well, you will. Just hang on. (laughs) We all face trials in our life. Every one of us faces trials in our life. And so when they come, we respond to them in a number of ways. And and they're usually quite negative ways. We don't like them. Of course, we don't enjoy them. And so often we just view them as a disruption. They're a disruption to peace in our lives. They're a disruption to security in our lives. We don't like them because they upset things. Trials don't maintain that peace and security. Trials are an inconvenience. We have this smooth American dream that we're living out, and along comes a trial, and we're like, that's not right. That's not my American dream. It throws everything off. Life isn't smooth when they come. Sometimes we see them as as possibly punishment for something that we've done wrong. I've heard this dialogue over and over again in my life. Oh, I, I don't know. I must not be living up to what God expects of me. So here comes another trial. Sometimes we blame others for the presence of trials in our lives. And, and we can't understand how could this possibly happen to us? It's not my fault. I didn't do anything wrong. So whoever brought this into my life, it's their fault. And we look at our circumstances and go, oh, it's because my kids are this way, right? It's all these different things that contribute to trial in our lives. We see them as an injustice, especially if they come from somewhere beyond our control and we pout. I don't deserve this. This isn't just, this isn't right. We often think that when trials come, they, they compete with the joy in our lives and they usually win. They chase that joy away. Trials can be described in, in this way. A state of trial or testing, and we'll get to that in just a little bit, in which God brings his people through adversity and affliction in order to encourage and prove their faith and confidence in him. And that's a mouthful, but we'll break that down as we go along. So how are we really supposed to view the trials in our lives? What is Peter teaching us here about their presence and about their purpose in our lives? There are entire books and many, many books that are written on the subject of trials because we all face them. And we see a new book in the Christian bookstore on trials and we go, great, I got to read that because I don't know what to do with the ones that I'm having, with the ones I'm experiencing. And, And we think, why doesn't the Bible have at least one entire book dedicated to trials so that we can turn to second trials chapter three and deal with what we're facing right now? I'll tell you what, when the Holy Spirit is guiding the writing of God's word, he doesn't need a whole book. 
Let's see what we can learn from one sentence today. From one sentence. Let's try this morning to better understand the nature of our trials, the purpose of our trials, the value of our trials, and the outcome of our trials. And we're going to get this from one sentence. One sentence. And at least get us started. So let's look first at the nature of trials It's amazing how much we can gain from this sentence. Four characteristics of trials that reveal the nature of trials are on display right here in this one sentence. First of all, Peter points out that trials are temporary. He uses the phrase, for a little while. Though right now, for a little while, you might be facing trials. For a little while. Trials are not temporary. Not permanent. Trials are... Good contradictory comment there. <laughs> In your notes, just scratch out the first part. Uh, trials are, are not permanent. Trials are not eternal. He points out that they last for a little while, and maybe it is varying lengths. Maybe you've experienced that trials for last then less for one day. They come in, and you deal with them, and they're gone, and the next day you get to start fresh. They're not there anymore. But some trials last a lot longer, don't they? Some trials last for decades. But regardless, they're not permanent. They're not eternal. Trials are temporary. And then we can see in this one sentence that trials are necessary. Peter says, if necessary, if necessary, trials meet needs. Believe it or not, trials meet needs in our lives. Maybe it's for our own growth and our own maturity. Maybe it's to prevent us from from sin or from the consequences of some decision that we've made, some wrong decision. But God allows them for his purposes because he knows that they are necessary. They are necessary. They're a necessary part of our experience here on earth before we get to heaven, before we get to eternity and perfection. And God wants us to trust that they are necessary. It's not easy to trust that. But he wants us to trust that they truly are, that the trials in our lives truly are necessary. And then Peter acknowledges the fact that trials are difficult. Trials are hard. He says, you have been grieved. He uses that word grieved. Trials are painful. Trials are heavy. And so you're not wrong in feeling the weight of the trials in your life. That's not out of line. In God's word, we get to see that, that yes, they are painful. Now, this term that Peter writes here and uses for difficult is the same term that was used to relate what was happening to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane before he goes to be crucified. Remember, Jesus was agonizing in the Garden. Same term as what we're getting here. There was this weight, there's this pushing down of grief, of heaviness, and that's the same term that Peter's using here in 1 Peter chapter 1. It's also used to describe a person who's lost a loved one. In, in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul's answering questions about those who have passed away. And when Paul relates to the grief that people feel when someone that they love passes away, 
It's the same thing here. He's talking about that grieving, that heaviness. God understands that trials are heavy. Nowhere does he tell us or expect us to view them lightly and blow them off. He understands that they're heavy. He understands that we grieve through them. Then Peter points out the trials are varied. He talks about various trials. Various trials. Trials come in all kinds of forms. Sometimes physical form. Sometimes relational trials. Sometimes economic trials. Sometimes emotional trials. There are all these different kinds of trials that we face in life. And that's, that's acknowledged here. And in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, when we get to that later on, Peter is going to refer to God's varied grace. He mentions God's varied grace. And the fact that no matter how different and unique the trials are that we're facing, God's grace is up to the task. Every single one, every time, his varied grace can meet that grief, can meet that trial that we're facing. And his grace is sufficient for us, period. Now, Peter is talking about trials here. He's not just talking about persecution. That was one specific trial that these churches faced. But Peter broadens it here and talks about trials and the various trials that we face. And I want to clarify something before we go further this morning. um, Because already I've been talking about persecution. That's found in 1 Peter. It is a letter to a church that was facing persecution, violent persecution, and was going to face an ever-increasing level of persecution. And so when I talk about persecution increasing for us and for our children as they grow up, um, I want to be clear about what I'm talking about. Because when you hear persecution, your mind can go in a number of different ways. And I've got some of that feedback already. That, That we're not sure. We're not sure what that really means. And so we respond in a way that may not accurately reflect what I'm talking about at all. So let me give you a basic understanding right now. We're going to get to it a lot more as we go through 1 Peter. But let me give you a basic understanding. Uh, I believe that, that more and more people over time are not going to be able to understand who we are. They're not going to understand who we are. And I'm not talking about what they do as a result of that. That's varied. That can take on all kinds of different forms. And I'm talking about the fact that they may not be able to understand. And that the number of people that don't understand who we are is going to go up over time. That followers of Christ are going to be more and more and more misunderstood in this world. And I want to touch on a couple of things here as we look at how we respond to that. Because it's really important that we understand how to respond. And so in order to understand how to respond, we need to understand a couple things, a couple aspects of this idea that people aren't going to understand us. And they aren't going to understand Christ. And so I want to look at at two things that contribute to this. Uh, First of all, um, we will not argue about this fact. Jesus was persecuted. And he was persecuted to a far greater level than any of us will ever be persecuted. He faced an awful lot. From the cross, as Jesus hung on the cross in front of this huge crowd of people who were all shouting for him to be crucified. They wanted him dead in front of that kind of a mob. Jesus hung there and what did he say? What did they hear him say? He said, Father, forgive them. Because they don't know what they're doing. 
How? How could that have possibly come out of his mouth? They threw things at him. They hit him. They spit on him. They called him all kinds of names. They created an immense amount of physical pain for him. Yet he hangs there dying and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Now, I want you to put that together with the words of Jesus that we looked at last year as we worked through the Sermon on the Mount. One of the key passages in the Sermon on the Mount was the Beatitudes. And Jesus said, blessed are the meek. Do you remember when we talked about that? I stood up here with a rope in both hands. And two people were out at the far side of the stage tugging on these ropes. Those ropes represented two things. Those extremes represented two responses that we can have. One is flight and one is fight. Now when Jesus was facing crucifixion, he could have done either of those things. He could have fled. He could have just avoided this altogether. When he was talking about going down to Jerusalem, his disciples said, No, don't go there. Are you kidding me? You can't go there. They want your head. Don't go to Jerusalem. And he could have gone, you know what? You're right. Let's not go. He didn't flee. And we know full well that he could have fought. He said himself he could have called on 10,000 legions of angels to come down and destroy every person who was shouting for his death. It would have happened like that. Nothing to it. But he didn't. He stood in the middle and demonstrated for us the meekness that we ought to desire in our lives. He kept his eyes on his father and he said, Father, what do you want me to do? And his father had a will for him. And Jesus hung there on the cross and he said, Father, forgive them. Because they don't know what they're doing. And when we respond, when we learn how to respond well to the persecution that we face, which... Begins with a misunderstanding, with just a lack of understanding. We can do either of two things, right? We can run, and we can just go hide out in our little Christian bubble where we never have to encounter those people, and we can be safe and comfortable and happy in our little bubble. We won't face any of it as long as we just, you know, drive on Christian roads and work at a Christian business and come to this Christian church and we'll be good. Or we can fight. We can argue with them about how wrong they are. We can hit back when they hit with their words or whatever might happen. Or we can stand in the center and say, God, what do you have for me right here? What do you want me to do? And he is going to call us to meekness, Chapel Hill. And we're going to learn what that means. We're going to learn how to stand strong in the midst of the growing misunderstanding that's happening all around us. And we're going to ask God what he wants us to do. And he's going to make it clear to us. And it is sure to involve us seeking understanding and forgiveness and peace and expressing love and compassion and acceptance. These are the things that we're going to learn to do well in this world. Trials that we face come in various forms. They may involve others, they may not. They may be very challenging, they may be very easily conquered. But having some understanding of the nature of trials, now let's look closely at the purpose of trials. 
the purpose of trials. This passage in 1 Peter, um, among others in God's word, affirms a basic truth about the trials that we face. Peter writes the words, so that, at the start of verse 7. And after describing some of the nature of trials in verse 6 and helping us understand what he's talking about, it appears he's about to state for us the purpose of the trials that we face. And he is. He is. The purpose of our trials is summed up in the words, the tested genuineness of your faith. The tested genuineness of your faith. Think about Testing genuineness. Think about companies that run trials on products that they've created. Um, I've, I've had the opportunity to be involved in different product testing over the years to, to make a little bit of money and, and help make ends meet. And, and even to the point of, of, of getting our boys involved, which they think is just the best thing in the world. Their opinion matters and they think it's great and they get paid for their opinion. That's even better. And we go through these different trials and the question of how this product will stand up is always on the line. How's it going to stand up? Let's test the genuineness of this product. The trials that God allows us to face in life test the genuineness of our faith. They do that for us. They test the trustworthiness of our faith. They test the trust, trustworthiness of our trust in our Father, in our Shepherd, in God. How confident is our belief in our Father? Well, let's answer that question when trials come, when we face them. And let's face it, when things are going well, we are most likely to pat ourselves on the back for being so competent as we work through them. We're good. We can handle this. Look at how strong I am. Okay, that's a subject for a whole other sermon. But when the trials come, we have the privilege, and I'm going to call it a privilege, of seeing just how trustworthy we aren't and how trustworthy God is. How does our faith stand up under trial? God is gracious enough to let us see that so that he can carry on his work in us through the sanctification of his Holy Spirit. Most of the world around us struggles with their own weakness when their strength is tested. God's desire is for us to stand victorious when our strength is tested. God's desire. And so he lets us see how much we need his strength. He tests our confidence, not in ourselves, in him, in him. Jesus told this parable, a very familiar parable, about a farmer who sowed some seeds on different kinds of soil. And when he talked about the seed falling on rocky soil, the rocks referred to trials and tribulations in life. And he said when the seed falls on rocky soil, it starts out great. It starts out with great joy. The word, the gospel is received with great joy and it sprouts up and it's ready to go. And then the trials come. And that little plant dies under the pressure of the trials. The faith of the people that that Jesus was talking about wasn't trustworthy. And that was proven through trials. God longs to see our faith in him grow and be strengthened. So he walks with us through the trials. He never lets go. 
walks with us through the trials that he allows to come into our lives. He tests and builds the trustworthiness of our confidence in him. And that is a tremendous privilege. I know it's hard to see trials as a privilege. Trials are heavy, but they have a purpose. They come for the testing of our faith. And if that faith hasn't been tested, it cannot be trusted. If our faith has not been tested, it cannot be trusted. So Peter has addressed the nature of trials and the purpose of trials. And now he's going to address the value of trials, the value of trials. And it can be hard to see the purpose of trials, of the trials that we face as being really valuable to us. It's tough. Honestly, I think we all just want God to to take us to heaven right now, just as we are, and let's be done with this. Good enough. Let me in. Let's get this over with. And he does love and accept us just as we are. There is no question about that. But he loves us too much to leave us that way. With a faith that is not trustworthy. And so he allows testing and trials in our lives. Peter writes in verse 7 about our faith being more valuable than gold. Okay, why talk about gold here? Well, there's an easy connection there. How is gold purified? It's purified through fire by testing. Gold is put to the test in order to purify it. And I read something great about goldsmiths back in the time when Jesus walked the earth. And this was written about them long, long ago back then. Some stuff written about their their practice, about the trade that they had. And and it said that they heated the gold up so much. And they, they used that heat to remove the impurities from the gold. And under that heat, they waited and waited and waited. And you know what they were waiting for? They're waiting until that gold reached the point where they could see the reflection of their face in it. Where they could see their face reflected in the gold. And if they could, then they were satisfied with the quality of the gold. And it could be used for jewelry and coins and for other things. Well, there's the connection and it's a beauty. As we walk through the trials in our lives, which we never do alone, ever Whose reflection is God looking for in our lives? He's looking for the face of Jesus Christ. He's looking to see his image produced in us. He's purifying us through the process of trials. Job, of course, was a man who faced an incredible depth of trial in his life. He lost so much on so many levels. God allowed him to be tested. He allowed him to be tested. And boy, I tell you what, I know for a fact, if it was me, I would have failed that test. To see everything I have taken away. I don't know that I could withstand that. But listen to the words of Job in Job 23.10. These are stunning to me. He says, but God knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. I shall come out as gold. What's the value of the trials we face? As hard as it may be for us to see, especially under the heaviness of our trials. God is producing something more valuable than gold in us. He's producing the likeness of Christ in us. The reflection of Christ. 
Hang on to that when you're facing trials. There is great value in the trials that you're going through. Great value. Far beyond what we can comprehend sometimes. So we've seen in this one amazing sentence, the nature of trials, the purpose of trials, the value of trials. And now Peter even throws in there a glimpse of the outcome of our trials. What's going to happen? And this is where my pride tends to creep in. As a result of the trials that I face, God and others, hopefully, are certainly going to be more impressed with me. They're going to see what's going on. Peter just said, I'm being refined to better resemble Jesus, right? So, of course, people are going to like that. They're going to think it's awesome. And finally, some of that glory that I've been waiting for is going to come. It's good news because I'm going to be stronger. I'm going to be more confident. I'm going to be more mature. How can people not notice that? That's not quite where Peter's going here. He says that the tested genuineness of our faith will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. At the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that means that there is glory coming. But not now and not from man. And we need to be okay with that. What lies in store for us is so much better than that. Listen to what Jesus says about this in Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. I'm going to read you just a few verses from Luke 12. Luke 12, I'm going to read verses 35 to 37. One more. There we are. This is, this is what it says. Stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast. So that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service. And have them recline at table. And he will come and serve them. He will come and serve them. Praise and glory and honor are coming for those whose faith has been purified through trials and is found to be trustworthy. How much hope do you have in the return of Jesus Christ? How real is it to you that the Son of God is coming back? Yes, he's coming back to set things straight. Yes, he's coming back to defeat evil forever. Yes, he's coming back to renew the heavens and earth and create a perfect eternal home for us. But he's also coming back filled with praise and glory and honor for those whom he has purified. That ought to be enough to keep any of us going through the trials that we face in life. In one sentence, one sentence, Yes, just one. I found more understanding and perspective and hope than I found in my whole life when it comes to facing trials. In one sentence, in two verses, found enough truth to, to do war against all my whining and complaining when things come to me, when things come into my life that weigh me down. It's right there. Have I found a way to avoid trials in my life? Nope. I'll never find that, and I shouldn't be wasting my time trying to. What I should be looking for is a deeper understanding of the nature, purpose, value, and outcome of the trials in my life. 
My father allows them. My father uses them. My father understands them. And, a result of, and as a result of those trials, my father will one day soon grace me with his praise and glory and honor. I can't wait for that day. Praise God for the words that he led Peter to write. Praise God for the hope and the encouragement that he communicates to us through his word, through the word of God. Rejoice, Chapel Hill. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Rejoice. Paul said it in Philippians 4.4 4 and then repeated it. He said, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I'll say it, rejoice. Jump up and down. We have reason to. Rejoice in your living hope. Rejoice in your inheritance. Rejoice in God's divine protection. Rejoice in your salvation. Rejoice in the refining work that God is doing in your life. Rejoice in the reflection of Jesus that is growing in you. Rejoice in the praise and glory and honor that is coming to you. If you'll just allow God to do his work in your life. Rejoice in your trials. And, well, there's more coming next week. <laughs> In the next two verses of 1 Peter, we'll find even more things to rejoice about. Big surprise there, huh? Our God is so good. He is so good to us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In these things, in this, we rejoice. We rejoice. You ever jump for joy? You have reason to. And our circumstances rarely give us reasons to rejoice like that. This world rarely gives us reasons to rejoice. But our Father has given us a vast array of things to jump up and down over. Let his word speak to you. Verse by verse, word by word, listen well. I'm amazed how much he has to say. And I hope you are too. I'm going to invite the ushers to come now and the worship team as we close the service. Just a reminder to those of you who are going on the City Vision tour, um, we're going to eat lunch here. If you didn't bring your lunch, go grab something real quickly. We're going to eat lunch here and then we're going to get on the bus and go. If you're going, oh, that was today, there's still room on the bus. Okay? We have room on the bus. You want to come, you want to come and see South Minneapolis and what God has placed here in this city for us. You want to see what he's calling us to? Come on this tour today. Just come. If you want to come just after church, run out and grab something to eat real quick. Come on back here. Uh, we'll just eat together and then we're going to get on the bus and go. It's not too late for you to join in. Let's pray together. Father, we could do this every day. If we could just sit down and go, okay, what do we have to rejoice about today? Oh, what fun that would be. You've given us so much. So much. You've blessed us with so many reasons to jump up and down. Whether that's on the outside or the inside, you've called us to rejoice. And not, not to see how strong we are. Not to see how, how our emotional strength can overcome our trials. Nope. You let us know very clearly that our trials are heavy. You know that. 
And that's why you promise and deliver on that promise to walk through them with us. You let them happen to us, and that's okay. We give you permission for that. Because they have a great purpose. They have tremendous value. And the outcome is going to be unbelievable. So thank you for that. God create in us that joy, that level of rejoicing over who you are and who we are because of who you are. Thank you for that. Thank you for this church. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this time that we're able to gather together and dig in together. You are so good to us. We bless you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.